Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and today I am highlighting one more time uh, another amazing speaker who will be presenting at the Fourth World Congress of Sports Physical Therapy in Denmark, August 26th and 27th. So if you haven't gotten your ticket, there's still time. There's still a couple of seats left, so make sure you check them out. You can go to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com and click on the Fourth World Congress of Sports Physical Therapy in the show notes for this episode to get all the information on the upcoming Congress. And now on to today's episode. My guest is Dr. Seth O'Neill. He is a physiotherapy lecturer at the University of Leicester, whilst also maintaining clinical work. He has a PhD on tendinopathy. Within this, Seth has identified prevalence rates of tendinopathy in UK runners and developed a great understanding of risk factors surrounding Achilles tendinopathy. His later work has completed more in-depth analysis of how tendinopathy affects the plantar flexors. This has focused on how the strength and endurance is affected and which of the plantar flexors is most involved. This work was highlighted uh, in the involvement of the soleus muscle in human Achilles tendinopathy. This has led to the further work related to calf injuries in sports. Will Seth's focus is on the lower limb. He maintains a strong interest in all MSK conditions. He feels passionately about supporting physiotherapists to undertake further research, either as standalone projects or PhDs. Seth is currently examining tendon structure and changes that occur during health and disease, along with biopsychosocial interventions for tendinopathy and low back pain, and developing an international database of calf injuries. So today, it is no surprise that we are talking about the Achilles tendon, uh, differential diagnosis, and treatment. So a big, huge thank you to Seth for coming on the program. And again, if you want to hear more from him or ask him questions live, then make sure you head over to Denmark for the 4th World Congress of Sports Physical Therapy. Hey, Seth, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you on. Thanks very much for having me, Karen. It's great to be here. Excellent. And today we're going to be talking about tendinopathy, maybe specifically Achilles tendinopathy. But before we get into that, I just want to let the listeners know that you're one of the uh, amazing speakers at the Fourth World Congress of Sports Physical Therapy taking place in Denmark at the end of this month, August 26th and 27th. And you will be talking about tendinopathy. So before we move on, I would love to know why. Why tendinopathy? How did that become sort of your specialty, your interest? Yeah, tr- tr- tricky to sometimes answer these type of questions, really. But um, I've had tendon problems myself. Um, so um, being active and sporty, um, I developed uh, an Achilles problem a uh, number of years back um, when I was a relative junior physio. And um, we didn't really understand how we were trying to manage these things and uh, took a long time to settle down. So that really sparked it off. Um, and then not long after, I developed a peritoneum problem as well with my Achilles um, from wearing sort of constricted footwear. So wearing wetsuits and um, boots um, for a day um, with doing some wakeboarding and stuff. So 
developed the interest because I had the problem myself, which is probably the answer for most people, I think, with how we end up specializing in one thing and went on to look at um, Achilles problems and differentiating these out as part of a master's um, dissertation project I did. And then um, still had some clinical questions I wanted to answer to help me understand how to manage people better. So I did my PhD in it as well. Um, so yeah, it's uh, one of those sort of sorry stories of uh, oh, woe me. <laughs> but, yeah. And before this sort of deep dive into the literature and a master's and a PhD, and maybe even during that journey, are there any cases that you worked on that you were like, man, I would do it so differently now? Because I'm sure, I mean, I know I have that. Every physio listening to this can probably relate to this. Um, but where have you learned from your mistakes in relation, we'll say, we'll stick to Achilles tendinopathy, right? Mm -hmm. So in relation to Achilles tendinopathy, so that the listeners out there can be like, oh, I think I just did that. And maybe I'm going to change my mind. Yeah. Yeah. We had a good number of these things, including not too distant past as well. Um, I think like everyone, we're always learning um, and we've always got to admit uh, mistakes and where we can benefit and do better. Um, so I think my early ones particularly were around uh, differential diagnosis, um, getting um, or missing things that were going on as well. So I remember one uh, relatively young lad with an Achilles problem sent him off doing Alfredson eccentrics. This was probably 2001, something like that. Came back loads, loads worse and um, had this funny swelling around the back of his maniola. And I was like, well, I've never seen this. This is rare. Um, and didn't know what was going on at all. So sent them off for a, an MRI scan by our consultant at the time and uh, came back with an accessory soleus, which is where part of the muscle is low lying and actually sort of fills where Kager's um, fat pad is um, at the back of maniola and can cause pain and be symptomatic and the old school approach is to just go in and cut it out so the surgeon just whipped it out and all done and dusted but I totally missed it the first time I saw him I don't know whether the swelling was there at that point or whether I triggered him off and made him worse um, with the, the sort of rehab um, so possibly um, but also then I've had a couple of people during uh, Alfredson regimes that have actually ended up with rupture um, or partial ruptures partial tears as a consequence and um yeah you end up sort of feeling terribly bad that what you were doing to try and help someone's actually caused a, a significant worsening of their function and symptoms and i even had a patient um, with this happen last year um, who would go try and write up as a case study because it's a really interesting management program afterwards with scans and stuff but ultimately that have big problems yeah, it it does. It happens to us all. Um, and how do you from and this you can, you know, we can edit this out if you don't want to answer this. But how do you deal with that from sort of the mental standpoint of oh, shoot, yeah. like how do you mentally deal with that? Because I think that when that happens it can, you start to question, why am I doing this? Am I the right person for this job? It can lead to burnout, that stress. So how do you manage that from a mental health standpoint when things like this happen? I think the thing is often as a junior therapist, you, you beat yourself up more because you sort of think I should have known that. I, I should sort of understand that. I think as you get more experience and oh, I mean, I'm 22 years, 23 years qualified now, you, you, you have lots of experiences like this and have to pick yourself up from them. Uh, and you just start to accept that that is life. That's normal. Whatever area of work you specialize in or work in, whether it's physio or even being an accountant or something, 
mishaps in things that you can learn from learning experiences happen all the time and it's really just then taking what you can from it and developing and getting better and when you have a bit of a, a boo-boo happen like this we tend to remember it and you never then miss it in the future um, I mean a couple of examples I've had in the past would be like femoral stress fractures wasn't even on my diagnostic radar back when I was a junior therapist um, you don't get taught it at university and stuff and then you sort of yeah you miss one and it's like right never miss one again now it's always high up on your index of suspicion so it's really just not trying to beat yourself up realize it's a learning experience and identify what you can do um, going forwards with it um, part of your CPD of your reflective practice that we're all um, encouraged to do and um, often do do but not formally um, so yeah yeah great advice Okay, now let's get into uh, the meat of the podcast here. So what we'll talk about is kind of, you you mentioned it, differential diagnosis. So we'll talk a little bit about that and then go into some um, possible treatments and, and outcomes and things like that. So let's say someone comes to you with posterior ankle heel pain they haven't been to their GP or to the orthopedic yet because that happens a lot here in the yeah. U.S. I'm sure it happens a lot with yeah. you in the U.K. as well. So um, I will hand the mic over to you and you can maybe walk us through your differential diagnosis framework. Mm -hmm. What are you looking for when someone comes in with that? So the first thing um, I think is, as everyone already knows, is not to take whatever the previous diagnostic um, decision was if they have seen someone as well and make sure you do your own workup because um, let's face it, we all make mistakes as well. So I'd always look at them with fresh eyes and not go with the, the original diagnosis and make my own mind up. Um, the three big things that mimic Achilles tendinopathy really then are related to um, posterior um, ankle impingement, um, so an os trigonum, whether it's a bony um, impingement or not. And they're the ones I actually see quite commonly that have been mismanaged. I had a cricketer recently, he's a professional cricketer, who'd been sent from their medical team in one of the counties in the UK, or England, I should say. Um, and unfortunately, they'd missed that he had a posterior impingement, not an Achilles problem, and been trying to manage, manage him using some invasive procedures um, and actually scan and everything else when I scanned them were absolutely pristine and fine and that's the one thing I do come across time and time again is just people miss the impingement side of it and normally the ags um, so aggravating factors and easing factors that the patient will report to you if you listen carefully and inquire will be very very different um, it'll be a totally different set of positions not about tendon load it'll be about ankle position uh, and being in that plantar flex position that, that's relatively simple and straightforward but again it just it commonly crops up um, other common or relatively frequent presentations then will be around several nerve so one of your branches of your static nerve um, runs on the lateral aspect of your achilles um, we just want to simply look at something like a straight leg raise with a neural bias for the um, everter area so you do inversion um, with dorsiflexion and if movements like that provoke the pain that's not normal for a tendon it would normally only hurt when you put larger loads through it and energy storage demands not simple stretches except in very highly irritable cases but you can normally determine that clinically um, so they're the two big things that the third group then is um, other localized tendinopathies so tibialis posterior or um, perineal 
um, which I think you guys call something different in the States. Um, what are the perineal? Everters of the foot. Um, we always have problems when we teach anatomy with our students. If they use an American app, it gives it a different name. Um, I forgot what it is, but anyway. Um, so yeah, so just looking at the differential between those other tendons. So patients may refer and sort of suggest it's posterior heel, but actually it's in front of the Achilles. So it's normally relatively localized pain. And there's lots of debates on social media about um, what happens when you get diffuse pain in that area. Diffuse pain is really quite rare in this area. And I, I do see a lot. I still work clinically as well as working at the university from a research perspective. And I do a lot of consultant work in, in sports and, and wider as well. And we just don't see widespread pain in this region particularly. And the evidence really suggests that tendinopathy, Achilles particularly, will be localised pain. It doesn't sort of spread out. But um, there will always be some exceptions, I'm sure. And it sounds like, from what you're saying, one of the other really important things is that subjective interview. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So what questions are you honing in on? What are you what do you really want to know? So I'd actually take a leaf out of uh, Peter O'Sullivan's uh, approach for back pain and look at the patient's story. Um, how do they describe this originally starting? What's gone on with it from then? And, and what are their thought processes around that? So we really look at the whole patient, not just the, the mechanical or bio um, sort of components here. Um, but then I'll tease into the aggravating and easing factors. So where the pain is, what makes it worse, what makes it better, how long it takes to come on, often expecting a latent response. So the pain's not necessarily happening during the activity. It will be a latent flare-up later, um, although you'll sometimes get a warm-up response during the activity as well. So we're looking for these hallmarks, and what we should pick up in the subjective is progressive tendon stress. So the example would be walking for the Achilles versus running versus hopping or jumping or landing, being progressive load. The, the higher you go up that ladder, the, the more it will flare them up or, or make them sore. Um, and then what we're trying to do is look at the sin factor. I don't know if you guys use that as well. So severity, irritability and the nature. But the irritability is key. The more irritable these are, the lower level we're going to start your rehab. And a lot of this subjective really um, helps guide our initial intervention program. Um, but of course, on top of all this, we've got to consider the patient and the complexities that we get from a psychosocial component. And we've just had a, a sort of paper out with um, Neil Miller uh, and the group from Glasgow on uh, biopsychosocial approach to tendinopathy. There's the um, ICON statement from the international group with Karen Silvernago that you mentioned earlier. Um, and that's really looking at the psychological factors and social factors that are relevant for um, tendinopathy, because like any musculoskeletal condition, the person's important. It's not just the, the localized tissue that we sometimes can get overly focused on. Oh, uh, absolutely. I'm, I'm preaching to the choir there. Um, now, you had mentioned something uh, in that just now, the warm up response. So mm -hmm. can you explain what that is for the listeners in case they're not quite familiar with that? Yeah, so this will be the person that will go for a walk or a run or whatever other activity, tennis, squash, whatever it happens to be, and they'll find it sore initially, and then it will get better. It feels better during the activity. And we tend to see this happens um, when they've sat for any length of time. If they're an inactive person, they'll get the same response then. So the first five minutes of getting up, having sat for an hour or two, will feel sore and then it gets better. And this is particularly common in the morning where patients get up and they say, oh, it's, it's sore for 10 minutes until I've 
walked downstairs, made myself a coffee or had a shower, and then I feel better, ready for the day. And, and that's typically what we see. So this sort of pain that is focused around starting an activity when you've been inactive for a period. So that's right. the warning. Excellent. Thank you so much. So going back to our fictional patient here, they come in, they've got sort of posterior ankle pain. You've ruled out posterior ankle impingement, sural nerve, uh, local tendinopathies. And now you're really thinking, well, given their subjective exam, mm -hmm. given um, the little bit of objective exam that I've done, I think that we're dealing with an Achilles tendinopathy. Yeah. Right. So you've kind of made that uh, diagnosis. Now what happens? So once we've determined that we think it's an Achilles problem, we just want to make sure that's the case. And, and the, the best, most accurate, sensitive clinical test at this moment, whilst it gets a bad press, is actually the site of pain. So asking the patient to point to it um, or you look at then gripping it and looking at palpatory pain. It should hurt them to touch that tendon. If it doesn't, then we're perhaps not dealing with an Achilles problem. So that would set up some alarm bells. The next thing then is to work out what sort of tendinopathy they have. Um, and within that, what I mean is there's this sub entities. So there's different groups that will cause Achilles pain. So you could have a paratenin disorder, like I mentioned uh, with myself earlier, which is essentially inflammation of the sheath around the tendon, a bit like you get with a decuervans tenosynovitis in the wrist or thumb. It's that same process. And that probably needs to be managed very differently because that's about friction of the sheath against the tendon. Um, and so we would manage it differently. We'd also then consider insertional tendinopathy versus mid portion. Um, the risk factors and some of the subtle management may differ. Um, and as part of that, often we'll talk about trying to reduce compression of the tendon, which is what happens when you're in a dorsiflex position where the tendon will swash um, against the superior aspect of the calcaneum. Um, that has had probably uh, inappropriate interpretation from lots of clinicians where they've heard about it and then say we should avoid dorsiflexion and patients then get told to avoid it, but that is forever. Uh, and of course, dorsiflexion is normal. So we've got to make sure rehab encourages it, but in a highly irritable case, a high synth factor, we'd avoid that in the initial phases uh, or reduce it. So you might use a heel wedge. Um, so mid portion and insertion, and then with the mid portion, we're trying to look at whether it's really related to the paratenin. Um, there's a potential of a partial um, tear, or you can get these other disorders, which we have academic disagreements about um, called splits, where actually if the fibers run sort of longitudinally, you can get a pulling apart of the fibers uh, and they're called longitudinal splits. Or occasionally you get a flat tear where the back of the tendon or a deep section of the tendon pulls off. Um, Clinically for me, they are much harder to manage and they're the ones that I have certainly in the last five, 10 years made much worse, um, both symptomatically, functionally and also um, structurally. Um, and they're the ones I think we need to be cautious about. How we look at differentiating those out clinically is on subjective again of how did it start? Was this a onset that you developed during a sporting activity or a um, activity, a functional activity like crossing the road and stepping up a curb um, or going downstairs or making a bed or something? Or did it involve um, whatever else? Or did it just come on gradually? You were sore the next day after you did a, a long walk or a long run. That's more akin to normal, typical tendinopathy being a, a generalized process of degeneration with some inflammatory elements that we sort of know and love as tendinopathy. 
But these sub-entities seem to be very different, I think, from management. And the problem with all the research, nobody splits them out. So all the research doesn't differentiate out these sub-entities. They stick them all together. And part of this is why I think a lot of regimes have um, washout. They, they look like people get a generally good response. Some get worse, some don't respond. But generally, about 70% of people get better. I personally think if we can look at these different entities, we will probably improve our rehabilitation. And Karen Silvernagel's work, um, I've forgotten now, it's gone out of my head, the first author of it, so I apologise. Um, Karen's the senior author. Um, they've looked at actually identifying clinical groups, so a psychological um, sort of profile group, a structural group, and then a more of a biomechanical sort of weakness group. Uh, and that's, I think, got some legs to go forwards with how we might look at our patients um, in the clinic. Um, and I'm just trying to remember if there's one more group. There is one more sort of sub-entity, which is plantaris-induced tendinopathy. Um, so typical presentation will be medial section pain, a little bit higher than typical mid-portion. And they may find that actually being in plantar-flexed or dorsiflexed positions when contracting the muscle and therefore loading the tendon actually hurts. And that's because um, Lorenzo Maschi's work that he's done has shown that you get some compression of the plantaris tendon against the Achilles tendon. And it seems to then set up um, a tendinopathy based on compression. Um, so we can identify that clinically with palpating the medial side. Um, but ultimately, imaging is probably then the better way to identify it. But it doesn't mean they need surgery either. That's the other important message for you to, to take away from it. They've always had that plantaris. It's always been there for that person's life. They've developed the symptoms for whatever other reason, and they will probably respond to normal management, but maybe with some modification to loading in dorsiflexed or plantarflex positions. Um, so we work in the middle a bit more initially until we're starting to settle and improve. Um, certainly in my clinical work, they will settle just as well as any other area does. Um, but of course, with a lot of the research, people are seeing um, tertiary sort of work, failed rehab, failed rehab with multiple people. And then, of course, they're more likely to go on to surgery. So we've always got to interpret the literature a little bit with caution based on the populations that the research groups or um, yeah, whoever it is that's writing the paper actually see and deal with clinically. Yeah, that was a great overview. Thank you so much. And now you had mentioned uh, imaging. So can you explain how you explain to the patient, do you need imaging? Do you not need imaging? When it comes back, let's say an MRI comes back and they're all out of sorts because, oh, the doctor said I have damage to my tendon. How am I going to fix this? Yeah. Right? So how do you deal with that? Because um, it that is what happens. And then yeah. people say, well, when we're done, should I get another MRI so yeah. that I can see the tendons back to normal? So how do you respond to that? So that last one I'll deal with first is that actually you're probably going to see some residual changes in the tendon that will take a long time to, to settle down. And this may be akin to scarring. So when you cut your hand, you end up with a scar afterwards. And that actually what we're seeing on the imagery at a later date may be similar to that scarring process. And also reminding them that the tendon is very slow to remodel and recover. So really, we're talking about imaging at a year plus if we want to look at it. And it doesn't matter what the tendon looks like. It matters whether their symptoms and their function are good early on. 
I would have a different conversation in an elite sporting population, though, where actually um, we know that um, a tendon that has structural changes is seven times more likely to develop symptoms the next season. And actually, I would probably then want to be changing the tendon structure. But again, that would be a discussion I have with the medical team, perhaps not the athlete so much, because we don't want to. We have to be very careful about the psychological impact of our words with our patients. And this is why imaging's had bad press over a number of years, um, because it's often given to patients and they get told, oh, you've got um, tendinopathy, you've got a big tear in there. There's lo loads of fluid and inflammation. And the patient's like, well, I need to then rest until it settles. I need to sort of get this better. And how the hell is, is it loading exercise going to help me get better when that's actually what's triggered it? Um, so they're the, the clinical challenges that we have to explain. In terms of the first place, when we do the imaging, um, I, I simply try and de-threaten them with it. So say, look, this is typical of what we'd observe for somebody with tendinopathy. So that is tendon pain that you've pre presented with. This is not out of the ordinary. This isn't something that's particularly severe, assuming that that's the case based on the imaging. And I'd also, with MRI, identify that it's actually a poor technique to look at collagen. So all we're going to see is high signal, really. Um, it's very, very hard. You need to be have an excellent scan and an excellent radio, uh, radiologist to really examine collagen fibres with it. Um, so it will tell us how big the tendon is and it will tell us how much fluid there is in there. Um, but we know that that doesn't have a strong relationship with pain. And this is, again, part of the reason why we wouldn't want to do it down the line so much. Um, having said that, again, Karen Silvernagel's group has got some lovely papers that have come out that show in structural change does occur with functional resolution and improvement in symptoms. So we've got probably two different research groups in the world at the minute. The Australians have often said we shouldn't be looking at imaging, whereas actually Karen's group, and I think where we're taking it in the UK, is that we should. It has a use, but we've got to be very careful with that interpretation. Uh, and we certainly see changes in tendon um, structure as we rehab patients. We don't need to see it in order to get resolution, but that's because structure doesn't correspond to what's likely to be the key chemical factors in the tendon that are actually what's triggering pain. Um, and we know there's lots of different chemicals involved in tendinopathy. So it, it's sort of trying to tie it all together. Um, my reason for imaging, I use imaging in practice most of the time, um, is to help waylay patients' fears because often they're concerned about the risk of rupture. And this has come out in Sean McAuliffe's uh, qualitative work on Achilles patients. So by imaging, I can actually say, look, your, your tendon has plenty of healthy tissue here. This, as best we can say at this moment in time, um, is a, a very low risk for rupture, is no higher than a normal person because there's the same amount of tissue as a, a normal person would have. Um, where we then have to be careful is where we find that's not the case. Uh, and we've just been doing a big um, longitudinal study in premiership rugby in the UK, um, looking at this to see about how that changes. And um, Matt, who's doing a PhD with me, um, is going to be analysing and looking at that data. So Matt Lee, he's uh, head of medicine at Northampton Saints. Um, so Matt's got a big bit of work to determine whether really it ties in and whether we can predict um, who gets more symptoms, how that ties. And Anecdotally, it does, um, but we need to test that. And um, so we're going into it to see um, properly. Um, but yeah, good use, I think, for imaging, but not um, longitudinally imaging for most of your patient group. And it's not necessary in most of your patients you've got coming through your front door for a normal practice. Um, but where there was a sudden onset of pain during activity, 
and they don't respond to a six week sort of period of intervention or 12 week period, that's when I would want to image to see what I'm dealing with. Um, or where there's overt metabolic changes um, in the person. So adiposity, um, so high lipid levels, high adipose levels, so big waist circumference um, and diabetes. Then we want to just make sure they've not got some underlying problems like um, sort of gout that's going on or pseudoarthritic complaints. Um, so, yeah, that's when, again, we might just step up a little bit and maybe consider blood tests as well. Great. Thank you. Now, let's move on to some treatment options, right? So we've we've done the differential diagnosis. Maybe we got imaging. Maybe we didn't. We've, we've ruled everything out. We're pretty confident we've got um, an Achilles tendinopathy. I will leave it up to you if you want to say, well, uh, split it from like, you know, um, lower to sort of an upper, you can, I'll, I'll let, I'll leave that in your hands and, yeah. and how uh, the rehab may be different. Th there's no magic. So that's the first thing. There's no um, exercise that's better than another. It's about understanding the basic principles of, of rehabilitation here. And this is really what we do. I think for all of our patients we ever see during a normal clinical role is going, well, what do they want to do? Where are they now? How do we bridge that gap? And, and that's essentially what you're trying to do with your patient is what's their functional ability at this moment in time? What do they want to do going forwards and coming up with a strategy to try and progress through that, making sure that that allows for appropriate timescales. So tissue recovery after exercise, if we're trying to adapt muscles and muscle strength, which is often one of our big aims, we need to allow appropriate timescales. So 12 weeks plus uh, rather than expecting rapid changes quickly. So what that looks like in practice is going, well, initially, we're going to start off with some form of loading for the Achilles tendon. Um, now, I would use a very, very isolated exercise because you can compensate by um, offloading using other muscles if we do more complex tasks often. So an isolated, simple exercise would be a heel raise. You can't cheat, you can't use your quads and glutes to compensate, you have to use your calf and it puts stress through your tendon and there's a nice work with Staph Lazarus that's just come out on a systematic review we were just sort of tweeting about earlier today um, on tendon material properties and how loading modifies the tendon and part of what we want to do is improve the stiffness of the tendon because with the Achilles tendonopathy it will be less stiff um, that's generally pretty accepted so we want to make it stiffer and loading does that the loading needs to be progressive in nature. So we'd use the symptoms to determine that. And Karen Subham-Nagel um, initially pioneered the pain monitoring model. So looking at how sore it is during the activity and afterwards, getting an appropriate level of discomfort that the patient can tolerate um, doesn't impact their function and making it harder. So something like bilateral heel raises, if somebody's really niggly and sore, progress to a unilateral heel raise. That, that's about four times body weight through the Achilles tendon. Um, for a bilateral heel raise, uh, again, depending on the modeling method that's used, um, Josh Baxter in the States has done some nice work on this in his lab and has got a lovely um, paper with um, Karen as well, um, showing um, exercises that increase tendon stress. And that's a really good paper for your listeners to have a little read of to look at how to progress or to give ideas of exercises and how they would progress through that. Um, running, for example, will be about five to six times body weight through the Achilles per step. So what we're trying to do is go, well, walking's four, <laughs> running six. How do we cross that boundary and use other exercises or just add external load onto a heel raise? 
which is probably your easiest way. Um, and, and that then allows very isolated monitored exercises. At the same time, I would always use um, walking or running uh, at the same period of time. We wouldn't withdraw them unless we're very, very sore and very struggling. Um, so we'd always use that. And in most patients, if we're not talking athletic, um, we don't need to use plyometric training, jumping, hopping and stuff. We can use walking and um, running if necessary to do that. Um, but the more elite athletes, I would always be looking at plyometrics. So hopping, jumping, landing, whatever it happens to be, accelerations, decelerations, off-tangent runs, they all increase the stress through different fascicles of your tendon. Um, and that's, I guess, one of the aspects we can consider that's not been researched yet. And it's where we're going with our work is how we might um, bend the knee or straighten the knee or rotate the foot to isolate the stress through different sections of the Achilles that correspond to where on imaging we see the degradation. So if we ever want to remodel the tendon, we also need to stress the tendon at an appropriate threshold. That needs to be 85 to 90 or more percent of your maximum voluntary contraction. And let's face it, rehab's never done that because most rehab doesn't quantify strength. So I'd always measure strength early on. Uh, a lot of you guys, I think, in the States have access to isokinetic devices within your clinics or in local clinics or other force measurement devices. Uh, I know Scott Morrison's got quite a lot of uh, sort of workouts suggesting how you might be able to do this with a handheld dynamometer. And, and there's methods we can do with that or even a set of bathroom scales um, to actually utilize um, a measure strength to give a patient a marker. Um, so our normal data in rugby and football on large cohorts is twice body weight is normal and we've got similar in endurance runners our patients are typically one and a half times body weight but that means doing a heel raise with just their body weight will not strengthen them significantly um, and that's where we lack um, our rehab then our rehab has to be a lot lot heavier than we've often done in the past um, so yeah so in a nutshell Bilateral razors, unilateral, progressing through. I don't use isometrics early um, as a method for pain relief because the evidence substantiates it's not actually that good for pain relief um, unless patients um, find it wonderful, in which case use it. But heel razors um, give warm-up response anyway. Perfect. Yeah, and in the States, do a lot of places have isokinetic testing? I don't know. My I misinterpretation, think... sorry. <laughs> I don't I don't know about that. Um even here in New York, I don't think, you know, outside of like the larger systems, I don't know that a lot of individual uh, physical therapy offices have that. I I um, do have a handheld dynamometer and I'm lucky enough to be friends with Scott Morrison. So he was able to kind of take me through yeah. and then how to use it. And um, uh, but it's sometimes the setups can be a little complicated, especially if you don't have an office, if you go to people's homes, how do you stabilize one end and use the other end? And I've come up yeah. with some interesting um, options. Um, but yeah, it, work. <laughs> yeah, I use um, seatbelts. I have chains. I yeah. have um, like this, the green, you know, the green stretch strap. Yeah. You know that with all the, I, I started using that because it doesn't give. You know, yeah. it's pretty, it's pretty good. Yeah. So kind of, it, kind of along the line of a seatbelt, you know? Yeah. Um, so I started using that instead of using even some chain link, I found it to be a little bit yeah. easier, uh, a little more gentle for people 
in their homes. Ratchet strap, uh, ratchet strap that you might use on a roof bar. So if you're oh, putting mm -hmm. on a roof rack, you might actually use then a strap. And those type of straps can be very good, especially if they're wider. If they're narrow, then it hurts the person's knee when you strap it on top. But ultimately, I like it because we can showcase that they need to do strength work because they are weak mm -hmm. and we more data to give them when you haven't got that opportunity it's really just sort of giving them this sort of step sort of wise approach to go well you're here you need to be there we need to progress through this and you then just target an exercise that is tolerable but is sort of getting a little bit of reaction afterwards for a short period um so like i said bilateral ear raises unilateral unilateral weight or progressing forwards and if you're a physio or a PT that likes um, lots of different exercises, give them a dozen, that's fine. But if you're like me, I'm very simple. I just give them one or two things to do mm -hmm. really well, to do very regularly. Um, and what we avoid in that way is they don't do the things that feel comfortable and easy because that's what patients generally do. Um, and they'll avoid the ones that hurt them because they think it's making them worse. But if we educate them that this is critical, we've got to poke it a little bit to stimulate the cells and improve muscle strength to help the muscle shock absorb for the tendon, which is our current understanding of what we're trying to do with rehab. Um, then we've got to actually sort of work um, very well in a bit of discomfort. And you beat me to the punch. That was going to be my next question is how do you talk to the patient about like, this is not going to be pain free necessarily, you know, you're going to have some discomfort. So you kind of beat me to the punch on that. But I think it's important that patients know um, that you're going to have some discomfort with these exercises and that's okay. Because yeah. a lot of people have been told, I certainly, I see it. I'm sure you see it their whole life. If it hurts, don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Uh, and what we've got to explain to them, and I often use examples of um, relatives that they might have had that have had a hip or knee replacement done in the hospital and how afterwards they have to bend it, have to walk on it. And actually, yes, it hurts, but it gets better. Or if you've broken your arm and you're in a plaster, how gently stretching it out when you come out of plaster helps it get better. And that's then normally enough to help people go, yeah, yeah, I understand that. I, I can see how that would help. And um, I also then often just explain that as you do this and you get the symptoms afterwards, that's the cells in the tendon excreting some chemicals that whilst it makes it a bit sore, they also actually remodel the tissue. And what we're trying to do is wake the cells up to repair the tissue, wait, repair the tendon, but also improve your muscle as well at the same time. Um, and we've got to stimulate it. It's no different from delayed onset muscle soreness if you go to the gym. So that's the other one that I commonly use as the example. Going, well, tendon pain is DOMS. Um, it is this uh, chap called William Gibson in uh, Australia has done a whole PhD on uh, delayed onset soreness um, because it's tendons uh, that he's looked at and connective tissue, not muscle fibers, uh, sarcomere itself. Uh, and his work, I think, is really pivotal, uh, pivotal with our understanding of it. So, um, yeah, flip it around as DOMS. Most patients have had DOMS at some point in their life. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I love that. Well, I have to say, I'm going to have to re-listen to this a couple of times. Even though I'm here, I feel like I'm missing things. <laughs> I feel like you're speaking. I'm like, wait, what? Wait, did I miss this? I'm going to have to listen to this over and over again because everything is so good. Um, and I think, thank you for making it so applicable to the practicing therapist. Um, because I think that there are um, 
nothing against researchers, but there are a lot of practicing therapists out there, probably more so than researchers, who depend on you guys to be able to, to sem disseminate this information in a way that is practical and makes sense. So thank you for that. Um, now, as we start to wrap things up, what do you want the audience to take away from our conversation today? What are some key points? I guess the most important parts of monitoring and treating people with tendinopathy is just get your diagnosis right in the first place. Um, differential diagnosis gets a lot of bad press at the moment, I think on social media, um, and it's been wanted to sort of dumb down and go with just, we've got posterior heel pain, but how I treat an impingement versus um, tendinopathy would be very, very different. You need to differentiate, and then you need to look at isolated um, tendon and muscle exercises that is progressive in nature. And I think the key message to physical therapists and physios is that we need to load a lot heavier than often we've done in the past. Um, and by getting normative values for certain sports like we're doing at the moment will help guide what we should be targeting. Um, and they have performance relevance as well when you're dealing with athletes. But for a normal patient, this is the difference between crossing them the road quickly in front of the car that's come in versus actually um, ending up with the car getting a bit too close to you. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. And and I, I love that load heavier and looking at the normative values, because like you said, if running is five to six times body weight and you're working with someone doing a single leg heel raise just with their own body weight, it's just not going to be enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We've got to we've got to push them a little bit more to load a little heavier. So thank you for that. Now, Seth, where can people find you if they have questions they want to ask you or they, you know, they want to find your research? Where can they? contact yeah. you i'm not a huge one for pushing the sort of research out other than via sort of twitter so we have a twitter handle that we, we sort of use regularly and we'll put papers on there and things um but i don't have well I've technically got a website that's on my twitter profile but i don't update it so i'm, I'm terribly slack and too busy to bother updating it and need to sort it out but uh hopefully this next year i have a bit more time so twitter's the best one it's just seth o'neill but um the o is a zero um because there's already another seth o'neill in the world oh. somewhere um, and then my, my other handle is Achilles tendons on there. And just so you all know, it wasn't an ego thing. Um, we, we set it as Achilles tendons because we went on Twitter originally to recruit patients for our research because some um, cancer um, specialists at the university had suggested it was a really good way. Um, it was terrible because you need loads of followers to be able to recruit patients um, and actually get your message out there. Um, it was great for networking, and that's, I think, the, the big thing with it. Um, so uh, I network predominantly and occasionally advertise research uh, projects that we're doing now. I've got enough followers to actually get some patients through the door that way. Uh, but, yeah, not ego, so just so we're clear. <laughs> so. Of course, and we'll have links to those Twitter accounts in the show notes at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. Um, and like I said at the top of the, our conversation, you are speaking a few times at the fourth World Congress of Sports Physical Therapy in Denmark uh, at the end of this month, August 26th to 27th. So do you wanna give a little sneak peek about what you're gonna be talking about and what are you excited about for the conference? So uh, myself and Karen Silbernagel are gonna be running a joint session um, for the British Journal of Sports Med breakout on um, treating people with tendinopathy. Um, so we're going to do two sort of sessions of that. So replicate it. So hopefully if you're interested in coming, you can come in and attend that. And hopefully it'll be nice and interactive and flesh out some of the aspects we've uh, discussed now with Karen. Um, and then I'm chairing the session, which will be 
the session that I'm most looking forward to um, with uh, Karen's there. Who else have we got? I've got to get it right now. Uh, Michael Kajar and also then uh, Steph Dakin as well. Uh, so really looking forward to that. Um, it'll be really nice to hear these guys uh, talk because they are literally at the top of that uh, sort of pinnacle of uh, researchers and clinicians really worldwide. Um, and then Denmark's nice. I mean, every <laughs> time I've been to a conference, all I've ever managed to see is a little bit of Copenhagen um, because it's been sports congress. And I normally dash in and dash out of conferences. Um, so it's a little bit the same this time around, but I'm actually looking forward to seeing a bit of um, seeing a bit of Nyborg. And also they've put two hours in the middle of the day for activity and, and they've suggested paddleboarding. And whilst I dislocated my shoulder a week ago or two weeks ago, it's my second time. And I'm actually, I was paddleboarding at the end of the week. So I'm hoping that it'll be a bit better by then and actually get out and have a decent paddleboard and some exercise rather than just sat at the conference. So that's one of the things I'm looking forward to. And of course, enjoying a, a small beer with yourself. <laughs> it's, yes, a small beer. I, well, I look forward to it. Um, and it is, I'm looking forward to going in the summer because I've only been to Copenhagen in February and it is cold. <laughs> and uh, snowy no. and rainy and all that stuff so i'm looking forward to going in the summer and um just looking forward to uh seeing a lot of people that i haven't seen in a while so that'll be really fun um and now last question it's when uh, i ask everyone knowing where you are now in your life and in your career what advice would you give to your younger self oh gosh um yeah it's a really hard question for me I always fancied doing research, but I was always put off because there was no ability to do it when I first qualified. Um, to do a PhD in the UK was rare in physio, and um, you might have been able to get a stipend, which is 15,000 a year, um, UK, um, which is actually quite a pay cut often though for, for physios as well. Um, whereas now I'd actually say, if that opportunity comes up, even if it's a bit of pay cut, I'd take it if you can, because, it, it does open a lot of doors as you progress forwards. Um, and I would, uh, unlike other people, sometimes I'd actually say yes to everything, um, generally speaking, when it comes to work, not uh, anything else in life, um, to, to look at options that we can um, just open doors. Yeah, you get so many things that you don't realise where it will lead and you, you agree to do something and actually certainly these on to 10 other things that are fantastic and change your career. So um, say yes to things when you can, uh, push yourself uh, and um, yeah, you'll get there. So read the next article per day. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much. This was a great interview. You gave us so much to think about uh, as myself as a practicing clinician. So this was great. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Absolutely. Uh, pleasure. And thank you very much for having me, Karen. Yeah. Great. And everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. Have a great, great couple of days. Stay healthy, wealthy and smart. And also, if you hope to see you in Denmark. So there's still time. We've still got a couple of weeks before the end of August. So if you haven't already, um, sign up because it's going to be great. So thanks, Seth. And thanks, everyone, for listening and stay healthy, wealthy and smart. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.